Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Carrie Gabrielson, and I've been diagnosed with HEDS, MCAS, POTS, and other related conditions. If you have questions, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or are just looking to chat about hypermobility, please feel free to reach out at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at hypermobilityhhgrain. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Doug Kramer, a mechanical engineer diagnosed with HEDS in late 2021. He's the father of two girls, one who is 17 and has mild features of hypermobility, and another daughter who is 19 and was also diagnosed with HEDS in mid-2021. Doug reached out after finding success with one of the treatments we discussed on the show, and he and I have become friends, chatting about hypermobility and many other shared interests. I wanted to interview Doug because he's found some great hypermobility hacks that have helped him to improve his life, and it's great to hear a hypermobility success story and to have an important reminder that HEDS definitely does impact men as well, and that the condition can be diagnosed at virtually any age. Doug, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. I think it's a great idea for us to document some of the things we've been talking about. Um, Maybe we could help some others out there uh, with the ideas that we've been tossing around. Definitely. Totally agree. Um, Well, let's start back at the beginning. Uh, You were diagnosed relatively late in life, which we know is all too common in the hypermobility and EDS communities. But looking back on your life, what were the indicators and signs of hypermobility as it manifested in your body and your life? And what did you think of them at the time? Yeah, I was diagnosed uh, almost a year ago, exactly. It was uh, November of 2021. Uh, I was 46 at the time. I'm 47 now. I only became genuinely aware of my hypermobility and learned the words Ehlers-Danlos like a year before that. Uh, it was a, it was a uh, physical therapist that, that broke that, the, all that, all that news to me and sent me down that path. But uh, l- looking like, I guess, back at my childhood, I've always known I was a bit different. Um, I, I, I had like fluorescent red hair. I have blue eyes. I always kind of stood out in the crowd. Everybody knew my name long before I ever knew, you know, anybody else was uh, just because I looked, you know, very different, I guess. Uh, but at the time I had no idea I was like genuinely different physically. Um, everybody, I guess, seems to think they're normal, mostly normal. Um, I guess maybe the first thing I remember was uh, kindergarten, first, second grade, learning to, to write. Uh, had a whole lot of difficulty holding the pencils correctly. Uh, they kept correcting, you know, cor- trying to correct my grip. Eventually they gave up. Uh, I remember a lot later in high school having to write pages and pages of stuff, uh, just completely fighting hand cramps. I think I can still feel those cramps in my arm today, uh, which now I know is a thing. Back in grade school also, I thought it was perfectly normal to like limp back into the classroom every day after recess or gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd roll my ankles constantly, never knew any different. Um, I had, I guess, a, a fondness for the jungle gym, monkey bar stuff, anything climbing related. I'd be up a tree, um, out in the playground, the like the swing set stuff, I go right to the top of the swing sets that I don't know if they still have them that high anymore. They're like 12, 15 feet off the ground. I go right up to that crossbar and be hanging and dangling, you know, that sort of stuff. Perfectly natural. I 
people said I was like a monkey. <laughs> uh, I was really good at dodgeball. I was never a thrower, but it was nearly impossible for somebody to hit me. Me and another kid sort of had a, a little team thing worked out where I would attract the balls and he would sit behind me and catch them and then throw everybody else out. And we'd be the last two people left and we'd win a lot of games that way. I used to entertain the kids on the bus with all the funny hand tricks and stuff. Never, you know, it's just something that we used to do in the summertime when we were in shorts. Uh, me and my friends used to play like tic-tac-toe on my arms and legs, just drawing with your fingernails. Now I know that is either just straight up dermographia or uh, an MCAS symptom. Mm-hmm. I've never broken a bone. That I think looking back is is something that a lot of the EDS people share. Uh, you either have people that, based on my reading, you either have people that break a lot of bones or people that don't break anything. Um, I've fallen out of trees. I've you know crashed bikes and all sorts of stuff. Uh, people who s- see me do these things just say I, I bounce and roll and get back up and dust myself off. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my looking back, I guess. Yeah. And there's a lot there, like you said, that's, um, you know, kind of commonalities with um, hypermobile people. And, um, you know, that made me look back on a lot of those moments in my own life. And you're right, like, whatever you grow up with is your normal. And, you know, a lot of us are in families with other hypermobile people. And so, um, you know, our main kind of home life, um, you know, has you know, examples of these things that, you know, to the broader population will kind of raise eyebrows, like the yeah. um, kind of spidey sense, like you were saying, with the ability to like, you know, duck the dodgeballs and fall out of trees without injury. And, you know, until we have that explanation of like, what is kind of behind all of that, it just, you know, especially when we're younger, it, it kind of seems like, you know, fun party tricks, like the dermatographia um, thing with the, the drawing on the arms. Um, yeah, that's something I've definitely experienced and, um, yeah, it all just, it all feels normal and it is normal to us at the end of the day. And I've kind of, you know, had a long journey in my thinking with a lot of this, but I I really think we're just a different kind of person at the end of the day and, you know, not to undermine the challenges. And we're going to be getting into that a bit more. Like there certainly are a ton of challenges. I'm the last person to argue that. I just had what I think was my 15th surgery in July. Um, kind of lose a little bit of count after so many, but um, yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, but you, you know, you've definitely had your experiences too. And yeah, but it's like, we hear a lot about the downsides of hypermobility. And like I said, first one to recognize those, but there are these things that are advantageous and like, especially in youth, like your ability to kind of evade those more serious issues with the kind of things that you've gone through and, you know, disentangling that and figuring that out and finding, you know, the right time to diagnose people is really important. Um, So they're able to make informed decisions, you know, based on their body's particular makeup. And I think it's really fascinating that it was a PT um, physical therapist that, kind of clued you in to Ehlers-Danlos because we kind of hear um, some different narratives when it comes to diagnosis. Very few people, it seems like, are diagnosed just from going to the doctor. It certainly happens, right? but I think it sounds from the people that I've spoken to, the majority of the way people are diagnosed is 
another hypermobile friend or acquaintance or maybe even a random stranger kind of tells them about it. But then the next biggest group that I'm hearing about a lot is the PTs picking up on this. And I think that's great that, um, you know, PTs are becoming more knowledgeable about hypermobility because it's certainly affecting a big percentage of their clientele, whether they are aware of it or not. And, you know, with new research coming out, we're seeing more and more that hypermobility in particular is really not rare at all. It's actually rather common. And so kudos to your physical therapist for staying up on the literature and cluing you into what was going on. Yeah, for sure. I, I think with PTs, it's it's really, uh, it's that one-on-one time that you spend with them. They usually have their hands on you somehow, they're, or they're directing your movement or observing your movement. And and that's everything. Uh, if you go see a physician complaining about you know, whatever pain or whatever it might be, even if you're not complaining about something, you're just there for a routine checkup. Usually you sit down, they sit down. Uh, they don't get to observe a lot of the characteristics that, that are prevalent in, in HEDS. They don't get to see a lot of that stuff. Totally. And I think that's one of the big challenges of the current medical model, which is typically the 10 to 15 minute appointment, you know, maybe half hour if you're lucky. But, um, you know, I'm trying to think back and there were very few instances where physicians actually, you know, have, you know, put their hands on me to examine, you know, a joint or something. It it almost seems like there's a bit of a reluctance to do that. And yet you're right, like, that's where you're going to really be able to feel things moving differently and, and all that kind of thing. So it really is problematic how there isn't more of that physical degree of investigation. Like, I know, someone actually, I'm thinking about it, I wonder if they're hypermobile, it's just kind of dawned on me, but I'm um, certainly not diagnosed. But a person in my community uh, told me that when they went to the emergency room, uh, they were being treated for, uh, I can't even remember what they thought it was at the time, but no one, so he was ch- you know, checked into the hospital and no one physically examined him. So it wasn't until his wife was either changing his clothes or helping him with something that she noticed he had this really dark spot on his leg that ended up being sepsis, which could be life-threatening, you know, especially for his age cohort. And I, it just shocked me that someone could be admitted to the hospital and there would be no full physical examination to notice something like a, you know, giant spot of black tissue on the, on the leg like that. And, you know, really kind of scary. And so, yeah, it, I kind of wish there were more, you know, hypermobile specialists who could take, you know, that's why, you know, like Dr. Chopra, like there's some experts who really do take the time and have like a really long first appointment to kind of go through everything. And that's really what we need when, assessing hypermobility because, you know, it can take a while to kind of parse and put all the pieces together and given all of the different types of Ehlers-Danlos and, you know, the spectrum nature of this condition, it really deserves a full um, investigation. And frankly, so does everyone, you know, like even the hypermobile population, like everybody can have an injury or a tendon issue or, or something that's not spotted by the naked eye, but that a physical examination would maybe give more information about. Right. So, yeah. So you talked about, you know, being diagnosed in your mid forties after your daughter was diagnosed. Um, What was the process of being diagnosed like for you and your family? Well, it's, that's uh, uh, like, like, I guess a lot of diagnosis stories. That's, that's kind of a long one, I guess. And mine maybe has some extra competition complications that 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 maybe are important as a bit of the backstory to it to kind of the path to get there 
but I would guess maybe it would start all the way back in 2002 uh, when I was diagnosed with a, uh, a brain tumor, a fairly rare type of tumor, uh, a benign tumor, but still rare because of its location. Uh, it was called a foramen magnum meningioma, which is a, a tumor that's in the, the, the base of your skull uh, in your brainstem area. And uh, it's anybody who's heard of the, the, the Chiari malformation uh, stuff, this tumor was in that location and it was uh, smashing my brainstem. So uh, I think I was 27 at the time. Uh, we took that out. Um, but as a result of that, a long surgery, but uh, as a result of that, I was on periodic MRIs for several years in 2006 then. So tumor surgery in 2002. In 2006, uh, I, I ruptured uh, my L4, L5 disc. It was not good. Uh, I ended up not having surgery for that. I've only ever had one major surgery, and that was the brain tumor thing. But I walked off the back, the, the ruptured disc. They warned me of caudic equina symptoms, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, said if it gets worse, come in. But as long as you're not getting worse and you can get by with muscle relaxers, whatever else, it will start to get better. And it did. But I would kind of have flare-ups in that area ever since. And then this is where the actual diagnosis story, I guess, happens is uh, mid-2020, my back was the lumbar area was just getting more and more not pleasant on a more regular basis. And I was starting to have muscle ache spasm kind of going up my whole back and down my hamstrings and all this. And I figured maybe it's getting worse. Maybe I re-aggravated it. Maybe I'm actually getting the symptoms of the, the caudic equinus stuff happening. Uh, so I went and found a, a a new neurosurgeon because the uh, the one who did my my brainstem tumor surgery had retired and said, "Hey, I haven't had a follow up on this in a while. Uh, my back has been messed up. Here's the slides from 2006." And he said, "Yeah, we can run new images." So I had a, a full spine, cervical, thoracic, and lumbar MRI done, and uh, the radiology report. For that was way longer than any radiology report I've had on, on any previous scans. It was at least three pages. All sorts of degenerative stuff. Uh, there was scoliosis, which I didn't have in 2006 as an adult. So apparently that happened as, you know, adult, adult onset. He said, yeah, there's all sorts of things going on here, but nothing, nothing that I want to operate on. Uh, you know, you're pretty functional. You're just all kind of discombobulated. He said, uh, you know, the tumor thing, if that ever came back or if this scan showed evidence of that, my practice can't do it. That's way above, you know, our, our technical level. He said, we'd have to refer you off for that. Uh, and then he, he said, he said, you're just a zebra in Kentucky with all this stuff going on. And he said, hey, why don't you try maybe PT? Have you ever done PT? So I looked up a local PT place, a physiotherapy place, not a physical therapy place. And uh, they put me with this wonder, wonderful DPT. Uh, she happened to be the clinic director of the place. Uh, she did a, a very comprehensive neurological exam, reflexes, range of motion, all that stuff. I, she actually checked more than the neurosurgeon did. She spent far more time than he did on that. Uh, she asked me to hop up on their like uh, table thing and try to feel what's going on with my back. And she said, oh yeah, there's a knot here, there's a knot here, pushing and poking around. And then and then, she, and then she says, hang on, let me see if I can pop this rib back in. And 
I, I didn't even know I had a rib out. I have no experience with that, but I mean, crunch and so much, so much discomfort was alleviated right there. I, I had no idea. This is completely all new to me. And after a few more minutes of this, she says, uh, so other than the back pain, has your hypermobility caused you any other issues over the years? I, I was so confused. I had no idea what she was talking about. I like I popped my head up and said, hyper what? <laughs> um, you know, she, she laughed. I laughed. You know, there was about 10 minutes of explanation that what happened. But basically, she she saw me walk into the clinic, walk, you know, they pointed over to where she was across the clinic, like 30 or 40 feet. She she said she could see it there as I was walking toward her that I was moving different during the neuro exam. Like I said, uh, she had me bend and twist and stuff. My back was like just knotted up, very not good. I put my knuckles on the floor, you know, forward fold knuckles on the floor, just punch the floor, no sweat, no problem. She's and and that that seemed normal to me. She said most people can't even touch their knees, especially if they're having back issues completely changed my awareness her just telling me all this um i had no idea she uh went through you know showed me some things showed so this is what normal people do look how you did this this is you're different so a few days later i was you know on dr google and i added hypermobility to uh to the search box while i was typing in a bunch of other stuff because i've got some gut and you know the other back muscle beyond the back issues i've got some other muscle issues some of which I think might be left from the, the brainstem surgery, but I, I typed a whole bunch of stuff in a search box. The difference was I added hypermobility to that list of stuff in the search box today. Somewhere on the first page of, of, of Dr. Google's answers uh, was the HEDS page from the Ehlers-Danlos Society. I said, oh, that's neat. Look, a zebra. My neurosurgeon said something about zebras. It just, you know, it's, it's something popped in my head. I clicked on it and I'm rolling... I'm scrolling down the list of the symptoms, comorbidities, you know, all that stuff. I had a flashback again of what the neurosurgeon said, and I about fell off my chair when I got most of the way through that list. It was just, it rocked my world. Just reading all that stuff on one page, it's like the answer to my life's question was laid out right there, just completely by accident. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was it was wild. So a couple days later, like I printed off that page. I was home with my wife and girls. We were eating dinner, finished dinner, and I said, "Hey, let's talk about this thing that this interesting thing I found on the internet that you know might explain some some stuff." We were going down through the list, did the biting stuff. Uh, my younger daughter could not do any of the stuff. My wife was laughing at her trying to do that stuff. I was doing everything. And my older daughter was able to do everything on the list too. And uh, that's that's when we started to really put some things together as a family. She, she doesn't have, or d- doesn't yet have, I guess, a lot of the musculoskeletal things that I've got going on, but she's been bat- she had been battling migraines and some uh, digestive eating related, like we thought she had the malls sort of stuff. So she'd been battling a lot of things and that's also, you know, that sort of stuff's also in the list. So we ended up getting, we got a hold of her pediatrician. Uh, I talked to my physician, asked for referrals, trying to get a hold of genetics. My physician found that there are almost no resources for her to refer me to. The pediatrician was able to refer 
and we got an appointment at uh, Cincinnati Children's. We're in we're in Kentucky. We used to be we used to live in Ohio. We're in, we're we're not unfamiliar with Cincinnati Children's at all. So Cincinnati Children's actually has a hypermobility hyper clinic. Uh, but we got her an appointment there about three months later. So it was August, I think, uh, of 2021. Mom went. I went. She was diagnosed uh, HEDS with no difficulty. The geneticist that we saw looked me up and down and said, you need to go get diagnosed also, but but I can't do it. The facility, they will will not take new patients uh, beyond 21 years of age. So I was basically verbally validated, but you know, left without a slip of paper and I had to go go find my own journey. So I started calling around. I found another children's hospital uh, this one without the age limit. Actually, I found two, one north and one south of me. Uh, both of them were two hours drive. Got an appointment for three months after that, so that ended up being November of 2021. Uh, they put, this was uh, Dayton Children's. Uh, they put me with the head of the genetics department. Very uh, well-respected Greek gentleman. Uh, but he met with me. Uh, I told him about my daughter's diagnosis. I handed her the the paper with the full written out, you know, 27 t- 2017 criteria on it. He looked it up and down and he sort of poo-pooed Cincinnati Children's. And he's, uh, I don't know. I don't know what, what was up with that, but he, he said that he would be very tough on me. And I was really confused because, I mean, you've seen the criteria list. It's, it's check boxes. There's not a lot that's subjective on it. Uh, you either meet the stuff or you don't. But sure, sure enough, th- thirty minutes later, it was the weirdest physical exam I've ever had. Uh, but thirty minutes later, he says he I, he doesn't diagnose many males. Uh, he pr- pronounces me to be a very classic case of HEDS, and sent me out the door with like three or four you know printed pages of suggestions of things to try and all that. And and that was my prize, and off I went. You know, back into society. That's my story. It was interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And I, yeah, I wonder, there seems to be, I've heard this from multiple people, that there's a reluctance to diagnose with EDS. And I wonder what's going on with that. Like you said, him saying, I'm going to be really tough on you. It's like, well, why? Either you meet the criteria or you don't, you know? So yeah, it's... um. Very strange. And, and there's a lot with the criteria that I personally find deeply confusing at best, I think, to put it mildly, given what I've read about it. And there's been some great studies talking about the limitations of the criteria and how they really need to be updated. But yeah, I don't understand the reluctance you know, to diagnose people with this condition. Hmm, it's strange. I, I- I, I only I can only speculate that there's you know perhaps some desire to maintain a rare status even though we all know it's far less rare. I don't I don't know. Yeah, that is an interesting point. And talk to many doctors and just kind of cold ask them when you hear that a condition is rare, what do you think? You know, without prefacing about Ehlers Danlos. And I've heard back multiple times, oh, that means I don't have to worry about that in that case. And so I think it's really, you know, really terribly unfortunate. I mean, it's just wrong, first of all. Um, you know, HEDS, I firmly believe is not rare at all. And hypermobility, definitely not. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a pickle. And it's, it's, it's impacting care, because I, 
I know doctors are really squeezed these days and they have a lot of pressures on their time. There's just really no excuse for being so dismissive of this condition with such um, systemic manifestations. I was just thinking back, uh, my, my brain's moving a little slowly, like it's uh, filled in with glue today. But um, I was thinking back what you said about how you had that tumor that was in the Chiari area. And I thought it was so interesting that it was described as a benign tumor. And I assume that's a reference to meaning that it's non-cancerous. But having yeah. a tumor in that place in your brain um, obviously can create serious, you know, life impacting symptoms. And so it's almost like we have to move beyond or come up with better language because it should, I don't think things should be such a binary, you know, it's either cancer or it's benign. It's like, well, it, it wasn't cancerous for you, but that doesn't mean it was benign. Oh yeah, (laughs) it was. Yes. Uh, it was, yeah, that in the world of tumors and, you know, cancer and stuff, I, I think cancer and not cancer are definitely better answers than benign because you could have some sort of abdominal tumor that, you know, is the size of a, I don't know, beach ball totally. that displaces organs and things. And that's anything but benign to you physically, but it's definitely benign in terms of cancer if it's not cancer. Yep. My tumor uh, was growing down inside. Your spinal cord is roughly the diameter of your pinky, as, as my neurosurgeon told me, and it goes down through your through the center of all your vertebrae in your spine. So that's a fixed cavity. And my tumor was in there in the very top vertebra, C1, and displaced the the spinal cord, flattened it out into a ribbon around the side. And then the tumor was growing up like a mushroom. It, sort of, it was basically the size and shape of a champagne cork, up, uh, mushrooming up into the base of my skull. And that's how we discovered it. The, the symptom I was starting to, I, I liken it to maybe kinking it kinking or stepping on pinching off a garden hose all the all the nerve signals going down and coming up were were muted were sort of choked off so i started to have numbness in my fingertips my hands got had a lot of thermoregulation issues my hands were very very cold my my toes i didn't realize at the time but i was losing sensation in the the tips of my toes and uh in this in the same way and uh they said i was probably i had probably been born with that tumor uh, they're very slow. The meningiomas are known to be very, very slow growing, and they only, I guess, make themselves known when they displace enough things or they take up enough space to to, to become an issue where they, they cause compression that, that causes symptoms. And uh, that was definitely how we found mine. And it, it eventually would have killed me had we had not have taken it out. Um, so that's definitely anything but benign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that word. Oh, oh, it's so I'm so glad they caught it for you. And those are really scary symptoms. And that speaks to also so many of the symptoms we have in hypermobility conditions can be related to other conditions. Like when you were just describing that, I'm like, oh, I have very cold hands and feet and, you know, yeah. fall asleep. And I'm thinking about that. But I'm like, well, is that the POTS or is that mast cell? Is, you know, there's just so many yeah. things to tease out. And that's why getting proper diagnoses is so important and why that word benign you know, can be so problematic because it also was a part of, there used to be benign joint hypermobility syndrome, which also is problematic because I would speculate, I guess, based on an educated guess of the people that I've spoken to, you know, a lot of us in our younger years, our hypermobility 
is relatively benign in the sense that it's not immediately causing pain like, you know, in childhood, although there's certainly a lot of symptoms that arise and some children do live in chronic pain. Absolutely. And, you know, for people out there wondering for resources on that, there's the Coalition Against Pediatric Pain, you know, absolutely a real issue. And there's a lot of people who start out in a phase where they're not having as many symptoms, but maybe they're going to fit the Ehlers-Danlos criteria later in life once that pain starts to manifest. So I'm glad we're moving away from that benign language in some contexts, but then like when it comes to tumors, it's still, you know, kind of haunting us in some ways and we need to be able to parse that all in a in a more nuanced way, I think for sure. Yeah, I I, I recall um, just a couple of days ago, I think I watched a, a YouTube lecture recording webinar thing from uh, Dr. Tinkle, and it was specifically focused on joint hypermobility spectrum disorder. That he did talk a little bit about the EDS deep end of the pool, but he he stayed toward the mid and shallow areas for most of it, and he did make a distinction about the the benign part kind of being an older term. It tends to diagnose a lot of people right now with HSD, hypermobility spectrum disorder, knowing that it is a wide envelope and you are probably through the course of your life going to move around in that. You could, you know, you may be born completely benign, bendy and happy. And as you age, you start getting into the deeper and the deeper and the deeper point and you start to have pain and it's no longer benign because it's inconveniencing you. And I I thought that was an interesting uh, sort of viewpoint of his. Yeah, I have conflicted feelings because on one hand, I think we do need a way to distinguish between people that are really symptomatic and really debilitated and the people who have the hypermobility, but not yet all of the sort of symptoms. But oh, I have such issues with HSD. And as far as I know, and I've asked many physicians about this, and please someone correct me if I'm wrong, because I I hope to be wrong on this point. But as far as I've heard, there's no diagnostic code for HSD. So those people who get that diagnosis, I think are really in kind of a no man's land. Uh, I just that word disorder is really problematic in this context to me, because Disorder, and I've done a lot of research on that word. I'm kind of a a word nerd, I guess. And the word disorder is typically used to describe behavioral phenomenon, eating disorder, um, attention deficit disorder. Whereas when it comes to genetic conditions, you know, the word syndrome gets used a lot more often. And I, I think it's really problematic. I think the word's just problematic in general, because like I was recently talking to someone with ADHD, and he was saying how he considers it his superpower. And, yeah, you know, you know and so it's like disorder to who? So I think even in the behavioral context, I think it's very problematic. But when we're using it to describe genetic things, like saying on your elemental makeup level, you're a disorder. I've heard the word defect and disease in this context, and I really recoil. I'm going to do another episode on those words and how problematic they are. But yeah, it's, it's really strange. And the criteria are just way too overly sensitive, the 2017 criteria. And the Toronto Good Hope clinic did a great study on that. So there's been some, you know, papers that have come out. And classic example that I give to people is that feature B requires the diagnosis of a first degree relative, and they have to get the diagnosis independent of you and you have to get your diagnosis independent of them. So that seems like a real chicken and egg um, problem for a lot of people. And 
can't, there's, I think it's in feature C that says if you've had a previous autoimmune condition, you must meet features A and B, something like that. So that logic, if you've had Lyme disease or something else and you are, you have EDS, you can't possibly meet the criteria unless you have that first degree relative. And we all know how underdiagnosed it is. Yeah. Just take the easy example of someone who's adopted. You know, they can't prove their first degree family lineage. And so they're just excluded from having HADS. Like, adopt, you know, adopted people can't meet that criteria. That is just patently wrong, in my opinion. And so, but that's just like one little tip of the iceberg example. And we'll do another episode going into more detail about that to not distract from yours. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. But with all this stuff, it's really fraught as well. I definitely agree with you on the, the words matter point. I agree 100% that I don't think that we have a, a disability innately just because we're built. I think we're built different. Mm-hmm. Just like people with mental disorders, quote unquote, are they're wired different. Is that that's that may be not an, a particular advantage and a, a, a large point part of modern society. But if they were in a different environment, would they be the normal? Would they be the, the, the alpha dog in that environment because their brain is built a little differently and, and we would not be? Variations, I think, are so much better better of, of labels and words totally. than disorder and syndrome. Totally, because we need different perspectives. Life is incredibly complex. Everyone has a valuable perspective. And it's it's unfortunate that our society has it is very hierarchical and elitist in a lot of ways and built on a lot of assumptions about what health is and what quote unquote normality is. And and I'm so happy to see that those are being challenged. Um, there's a lot of great advocates out there who are really uh, really have opened my eyes and I know are really helping to clarify and, and destigmatize these narratives. So that's wonderful. Since learning about your diagnosis of HEDS, you've found some things that have really improved your quality of life. And I'm very impressed by your ability to research and experiment with what works for you and just with your attitude in general. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what things you've found that work for you and what the process was like of finding those treatments and trying them out in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess long before my do- diagnosis, I, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way, just how I operated. You know, I used to just go, go, go until I fell over, um, just completely exhausted. And then I felt like I got hit by a truck for a couple days afterwards. Mm-hmm. So this was, you know, decades ago, I, I learned to try if, if if i'm mentally there and have the forethought to do it i will try to break down tasks into little bite-sized pieces maybe 10 20 30 minute pieces chunks little discrete bits that i can do that without stopping for a break without with you know just get everything ready and knock that bit out and then i can stop get a drink see how i'm feeling sit down for a minute Okay, and then do the next bit and then, you know, rest and do the next bit. And it may not even be a rest. It may just be just a pause, stand up straight. How, how am I doing right now? I'm great. Okay, I can move to the next thing. That has been a lot for me to do that. And I still forget uh, to do that sometimes. If I'm mentally wrapped into something, I will just go, go. And, you know, hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it is, when I'm done later or when I fell over, I'm like, yep, I forgot. I forgot to pace myself. I forgot to do a check-in. Sometimes I even consciously do that. Something's an emergency, you know, flat tire, you know, whatever it is. I'm like, I'll pay for this later, but I make the conscious choice to do it sometimes. 
you know, all the stuff that we weigh, a lot of the things I've figured out have actually come from this podcast, from you. And that's that's part of the reason I, I made contact with you a, a while back and we've been talking. The guests you brought in have either directly helped me in the interview portion or I went and looked them up and, and gotten gone into their own resources. A lot of stuff, specifically uh, Esther uh, Gokale, her whole primal posture thing, mm-hmm. the stacking, the, the seated, the you know, stretching out your spine, seating, laying down, posterior chain, uh, walking stuff. I realized in watching some videos that she, that she produced that I wasn't walking right. A combination of stuff that I had worked on with my with my PT, and then watching Esther's videos put that all together for me in my head, and I just had just literally a light bulb moment of I know how I'm walking now, and I know what I need to do. I had been walking basically like I was going uphill all the time. I would like lean forward and then swing my legs out to catch myself and then basically march, you know, stand back up on that leg, you know, rescuing myself from falling forwards. It made a big difference to how I feel. Dr. Tinkle's episodes, he put out just such a validation and an understanding and just a big hug to the EDS community. I actually teared up a couple times listening to him speak um, on this on your show here. Dr. Chopra, I love him. Uh, I actually, by happenstance, got to have about an hour phone call, uh, private consultation with him, somehow through my insurance. And he, he said a lot of the things that he repeated with you. I love his attitude. He just throws out, here's a bunch of stuff that people have tried. It may work for you. It may not. Think about it. He brought up uh, LDN to me. He brought up increasing my electrolyte and salts, salt intake. Uh, that those have made big differences. He brought up compression garments, so I've got some very nice running tights now that I notice a distinct difference when I wear those just under my work clothes to work. I have a lot more energy through the day, and they they actually help my knees quite a bit. These are the the CWX. They're high end running tights, but they've got this like extra reinforcement stuff sewn into them that sort of mimics KT tape. It starts down at the ankles and wraps up and goes around your knees, makes like a bullseye sort of around the knees and then goes all the way up. And it's helpful. It is. I, I notice more stability in my knees and my hips. I think they do help to keep a little blood up top, explaining how I have a little more energy through the day. And they definitely help me uh, know where I'm at. One of the buzzwords that has been sort of the light bulb in my life is uh, proprioception. Now I understand why wearing long sleeve shirts, why wearing a jacket has always felt better for me than wearing something short sleeve because I know where my arms are. And when you've got crazy long arms, it helps to know where your body parts are. Mm -hmm. Uh, You interviewed Libby uh, Hinesley. Uh, Mm -hmm. I bought her book, Yoga for Bendy People, when it first came out, even before the the hardcover was out, when it was on... uh, they had the ebook out and I bought it and I devoured it. And I've been actually in contact with her a little bit uh, through Facebook and her YouTube videos. And uh, that book is kind of a lesson in motion and how to move and, and how yoga isn't necessarily bad for you. It's sort of the ideas of Western yoga are bad, not, but yoga as developed is not bad. Some of the early, some of your very first episodes, you talked about LDN. Um, so that, LDN there, LDN from Chopra. I've heard about LDN from several different places. I finally went and uh, spoke with my PCP about it. She had never heard of low-dose uses. She was eager to learn. As I was telling her about it, she was writing out a prescription. 
and said, here, it can't possibly hurt you if you're taking it at less than a tenth of the standard dose. Give it a try. Let me know how it goes. And it has been an absolute game changer for me. And I'd like to, I'd like to very definitely clarify to people that these are things that I've found success with. This is not medical advice. Don't go try drugs. Talk to your doctors, all that, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, I had been on several different like anti-inflammatories over the years. Um, she advised I stop taking handfuls of ibuprofen and try meloxicam a while back. So one, one a day versus handfuls of ibuprofen after going on low-dose naltrexone. As I was ramping up my dose, I dropped the meloxicam as a test, and I don't need it. I still have it in my drawer. If I hurt myself, it's still an anti-inflammatory. It still works great. It's you know I can add it in, but I I feel better now than I ever have in 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 my adult life. And I think a a big part of it is LDN. The second biggest part of it is fixing and unwinding my my messed up posture, my messed up motion mechanics. Those have been the biggest things. That's so great to hear that. And I'm so happy to hear how you've approached, you know, listening to the guests, going out and learning more about them. And yeah, I completely agree. Dr. Chopra is fantastic. He is so knowledgeable and cares so much about our community. And also so glad to hear that Esther Goclay and Ruby Hinesley's you know, work spoke to you. That's It's really great to hear because that's really the goal of this podcast is to put a lot of ideas out there, a lot of people who have experience with hypermobility from one angle or another, and then letting the audience you know, work with their hopefully at least open-minded physician, although I know that can be a real challenge, um, particularly in some areas of the country, some areas of the world. But it's just, it's so great to hear that you're you're feeling better than you have in your in your adult life and i think that's such an important message to put out there that people with hypermobility can get better treatment really can help you know obviously i know there's tons of really complicated cases out there where people haven't found treatments yet and you know it's very individual and i'm glad you're making the disclaimer that people should not just dabble with things on their own and do this with some degree of medical oversight as much as possible, but it's great because you hear conflicting things. Some people say EDS gets better with age because joints tighten. And some people say, no, then you just have the tightness on top of the hypermobility. And some people say it's degenerative and it always gets worse. And the fact is there just hasn't been enough research. And I've heard of these instances of people getting significantly better, even in their adulthood. And that's incredibly inspiring. So thank you so much for sharing your story on all of that. Yeah, my whole perspective on the EDS getting better, getting worse, it's, uh, I don't think it's a sentence either way, that you get worse necessarily. And it's not, a lot of people won't necessarily get better either. Uh, Definitely, injuries add up. (laughs) That's, I think that's probably the biggest thing is injuries add up. Uh, Lord knows I've got so many soft tissue injuries to make up for my lack of broken bones. Mm-hmm. But at, at 47 now, I am I am as or more flexible than I think I've ever been, which, yeah, other, other than I, I've injured my right shoulder a little bit, so I can't quite join my, I can't reach up the back of my back and scratch my head with my right arm like I used to, but I still can with my left. It's, yeah. Things are different. We just we're just different. Yeah. I'd I'd like to say that also a lot of people perhaps have 
the idea that PT, going to PT is going to fix you, like going to PT is going to make you stronger. It's going to stabilize all the muscles, whatever it is that that was not my experience with PT. It was not a workout or a fitness gym thing for me where I put on muscle. Uh, It was mostly this wonderful lady again, pointing out how I did things wrong, how I did things differently and how I should do things and making me feel what it's like to do those in the correct way. Like she had me do some exercises and I would make like the endpoints, you know, twist with this TheraBand that way to that way, but I wasn't doing it right. I was moving from my knees instead of moving from my back. And she actually had to put her hand, put one hand on my knee and put one hand on my shoulder and say, don't move your knee, move from here and to get me to, to make the motions correctly. And I said, you know, why am I not moving how I'm supposed to? And, and she says, well, most people can't move in all the different degrees that you can. You, you, your back is sore, so you're not using your back. You're using your knees and your hips because you can. Most people can't. She said I had just horrible muscle recruitment, so we worked a lot on cues uh, to use the right muscles. Uh, like I said, posture. She had me feel what it was like to have my pelvis neutral, to have my knees neutral and how to maintain that neutrality. So like if I'm standing in one spot, instead of just locking my knees out, I can, you know, wiggle my knee frontward, forwards and backwards to not lock it. Because while it's in motion, I'm aware of what it's doing. It's when I forget about it or when I just sort of let it go out of my mind that it would lock out, lock backwards. So we found out my posture starts from the bottom. It starts from my feet. I, you know, feet straight. Uh, I'm a big over pronator where I walk on like the outside of my foot if I'm not wearing shoes. So I got some very nice commercial, not, not custom commercial, top of the line commercial orthotics, some more stable shoes, like uh, a hiking boot. Say I've got a wider base so they, I don't roll my, I haven't rolled my ankles once since I've got these hiking boots but they're mid-ankle hiking boot. So that lets me feel, I can feel the, the top of the shoe brush against my ankle as I move it around. And that sort of tells me where my foot is. And I get advanced notice if I start to kick my kick my ankle out to the side, not locking out my knees, keeping my pelvis neutral and sort of how to, as I'm walking or if I'm standing stationary, I, she showed me how to do just a little wiggle of my pelvis to make sure I can still move it in all three dimensions and that I'm not locked out against a stop. She showed me how what it should feel like to sort of have my shoulders stacked on my spine and not sort of hanging with all my weight forward. So as I'm doing my morning walks or whatever, um, I've got this men- this whole mindful mental checklist of about eight or 10 things that I'm, that I'm just rolling through and testing. And am I still good? Am I still good? And it's very hard to hold a conversation with me if you're walking with me, because I'll, I'll just I'll lose my my mind my my mindfulness, and I'll just sort of crumple over, and uh, it it's constant. If you're not thinking about what you're doing, you're not doing it right, and and it's it's difficult, but it pays off. It has paid off so much for me. I started out walking a little bit, a half mile, mile, two miles. Uh, this morning, I walked uh, six and a quarter miles before the sun came up, and just again sleep issues. EDS people have problems sleeping. I spontaneously wake up 4.35 in the morning, wide awake, sometimes heart pounding. I figured out it's a good time to go out and take a walk. Gives me something to do. (laughs) I'm so glad you found so much that works for you. And 
They're great practical suggestions. I'm still looking for a great mid-heel hiking boot. It appears that my feet are like non-standard. Um, this is really yeah. fine, but I'm glad that you have found all of that and such a great reminder about proprioception. And that is certainly something that's a huge challenge and finally getting more attention as the sort of sixth sense. And I kind of, you know, it's unfortunate that movie came out and kind of stole the concept of the sixth sense. Um, but the sixth sense is not being able to sense ghosts, it's proprioception. And it kind of makes you wonder what other senses, if there's other ones that are sort of undiscovered as of yet. But that's all. It's so great to hear that you've, you know, made these incremental changes and, you know, listen to your body and that you've been able to find a PT who could help educate you on these things. But you're right. Like, you know, for many of us, we really struggle in PT and kind of expect that it's going to help us, you know, get better. And I think your your attitude and your approach to it of, of just learning these things and, you know, having to implement and put up, put the work in on your own um, is really, it's great. And I'm, I'm just so glad to hear that all that has benefited you so much. I'm checking the time here and I'm realizing we probably have enough to do another part two episode. So should we pause it here and then do the rest um, another day? I'm also having kind of brain foggy moments and feeling a little lightheaded. So maybe that's, uh, maybe we can do the rest another day. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to continuing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for joining us today. Uh, This was great. And thanks for being um, such a great friend and a a kind listener. Uh, Your feedback and perspective are so appreciated. Thank you, Carrie. Yeah, thank you. That's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.